Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. Now, a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of chatting to Jennifer Fraser, and um, we chatted and chatted and chatted all about what she was calling the bullied brain. Turned out she'd written the book. Turned out I bought it. Turned out it was really fascinating and thought it'd be great to reconvene and actually chat a bit more about the book and what you could expect to find. And um, some of you will know I've done this a few times. And uh, it just gives us the chance to open the subject out a little more, uh, to find out more about the author, but also for you to get a, a better idea of what you'll find when you go into the book and see if it's the right thing for you. So hi again, Jennifer. Nice to see you again. Hi, Russell. Thanks so much for having me back. It's a pleasure. And you have some form of esoteric artwork behind your uh, right ear. So what's going on there then? It's actually a horse. It's a great big horse that's that's being painted on the back of a ping pong table. So that bar across looks like it's holding this wild stallion at bay, but it's really the base of a ping pong table. Yeah. <laughs> And that's Podcast Guild for those of you who aren't watching. So there you go. <laughs> and given we're not recording the video, then that's that's even worse. Okay. So, uh, well, anyway, the bullied brain. First of all, tell us, tell us who was for the motivation behind the book, if you would, Jennifer. The book is written for people who have been bullied or abused. I mean, I really focus on adults' maltreatment of children and how a lot of adults are doing this, these kinds of behaviors without even knowing how harmful they are. So it's really, for me, I think we're at a point of a tipping point. It's kind of like a scientific revolution moment for us as a society because we have these outdated beliefs where we think, oh, if we're really tough on kids, if we're tiger mothers, if we really uh, break them down, then we can build them back up. Let's make them tough for a tough world. Well, it's all backfiring. So I took a look at the science and the science is very clear that children don't learn and don't perform high and don't have healthy brains if we treat them that way. So the book is really written for a reader who might have been through these kinds of scenarios and is seeking a way to, you know, seeking evidence-based practices to recover. Mm. And, that's, and it's fair to say that you're really linking it to some of the more uh, modern approaches. Although you actually reference and um, use examples from the past, um, some famous experiments, actually your approach is really one more of neuroscience to, to really sort of illustrate the process. Can you just... Talk us through that and why that was part of your decision. Um, you know, it's an interesting question because what happened with me is my PhD is in comparative literature. 
So we're trained to take different discourses, throw them into an arena and see what comes out. So when I wrote my book, Teaching Bullies, about a crisis I was involved in at a school, um, I was looking at all the different um, sort of modalities and lenses in which people handle these kinds of things. So I looked at the law and I looked at education and I looked at psychology. And when I hit the neuroscience, I was pretty shocked by what I read because of course, most of us grow up without having anyone mention our brain unless we have a trauma of some kind. You know, we don't, we don't teach kids about their brains. We don't learn about our brains. Our doctor never mentions our brain, never assesses our brain for health. You know, they look at our blood and our, our heart and our, we get our teeth looked at at least once a year. No one's looking at the brain. So I was really uh, personally invested because my son had been abused by two teachers, a lot of humiliation and uh, threats and physical abuse, homophobic slurs. And when I started to read the neuroscience on what that does to a developing brain of a, a teenage boy, that was there was just no stopping me i have been beating the drum since that time because i think i think all kids need to know this all teachers need to know it coaches need to know it and parents need to know it and effectively what's happening is the neurochemistry is working against the brain and allowing it to deselect things which are healthy for itself and um and and run the risk of actually uh, allowing this sort of behavior to repeat i mean that's a very simplistic way of putting it but is, is that fair Oh, that's absolutely fair. And I mean, the thing is, the brain, on the one hand, is incredibly complex to the point where someone who isn't trained in what neuroscientists refer to as deep science really is going to struggle to understand it. I would never be able to understand the deep science. I don't have a neuroscience PhD. What I can understand perfectly, and it's incredibly almost like common sense, it's simple, it's clear, it's evidence-based, replicated, and huge consensus behind it mm. is what's called the behavioral science. And the behavioral science um, is backed by thousands of articles in the deep science. And it will tell you clearly that just as you said, if a brain is constantly under the threat and the fear and the anxiety of being bullied or abused in the home or school or in sport, whatever, it is constantly ramping up its stress response system. That stress response system should be able to naturally shut off. It's designed for a predator. It's a fight, flight, or freeze response. But if you constantly are activating it, you are doing significant damage to your brain architecture. And people don't know this. And you can't see the scars on, on the brain unless you're looking at a brain scan. And that's why we have to start listening to the people that are looking at the damage on a brain scan. Uh, oh, of course, and, and I should say rather no, uh, just measure people's cortisol because that's the actual chemical that's uh, the neurotransmitter that's causing the problem. Uh, uh, not the, the hormone is causing the problem. Um, but it's interesting as well, because I'm, uh, I'm delighted that you brought up fight and flight and freeze, because that's the third thing that people often forget. But increasingly, and, in, and very importantly with um, trauma patients, it's also FLOP as well, which I know comes from ENDR, but I know your, your man, um, The Body Keeps the Score, talks a lot about this, this idea that um, people who uh, are abused learn this, this final you know, um, approach of flopping and accepting abuse, which is a problem, isn't it? Because actually that is in the body for the rest of your life, not just in your brain. And then you get this my, this brain-body link, which people underappreciate, I think, and therefore the cure to some of these issues, or not cure, but the, the management or dealing or coping with these things is has got to be more um, 
um, um, holistic than just actually, you know, resetting a chemical balance, which is which is never going to work really. So I just wonder what your thought is about the extra F, because um, you know, otherwise we're going to fall out really early. But I don't think we will. Um, I I think it's a really good point, and it's a key component of my book. Because what I ended up trying to do is address things like flop by saying we have to learn how to realign our mind, our brain, and our body. All three components have to be in alignment or they start to work at cross purposes. And this is how you start to get, you know, um, behaviors like an eating disorder mm. or think about it, you know, suicidal ideation, suicidal ideation. You know, I talk about this in the book, but, you know, suicide is when you kill yourself. That's very different from bully side. When you are committing bully side, you're trying to kill the bully, but the bullies become absolutely morphed into who you are. You hold the bully in your body, in your mind and in your brain. And so tragically you end up eliminating yourself such as your passion and desire and, and like suffering to get rid of this Thing that you've internalized. And so when you talk about Bessel van der Kolk, it's really interesting because it's they've these people have identified with the aggressor. They no longer have clear selfhood. And what I found really chilling, and it's this is a part of a book I'm I'm still working on that comes after the bullied brain. What I'm starting to realize is, and I do write about this in the bullied brain, is the abuser becomes a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde. So the abuser's really good at being the pillar of the community and totally cult following. It's so charismatic and so intelligent. And behind closed doors, this person is Mr. Hyde. So this person has really borderline personality disorder. They're yeah. split. And oftentimes, and I found this fascinating in the research, how, do the, how does a person get split like this from being abused? So just as you said before, Russell, it's all about the cycle. And, and really, we've got to find a way to halt the cycle, which is incredibly difficult to do. So throughout the bully brain, I, I don't say ever it's easy to fix your brain. It's easy to recover. It's easy to repair. It's not easy, but it can be done. The research is crystal clear that we can get better. We can return a brain that is truly like damaged into a brain that's high functioning again and has organic health. So have you um, looked at the, I know you talk a lot about meditation, mindfulness and such like, which everybody does. So let's park that because it's, it's sort of everyone that talks about that. But have you done any, any work on the polyvagal type side of things that Rhonda Kirk talks about? Or is that coming in the next book? No, you know, I'm, I sort of, in the next book, I'm moving away from so much science and I'm looking more at um, psychopathy basically, and how we've, we've become a society that's normalized mental illness. So we, we elect people to positions of vast power and control in our world who are very blatant psychopaths. Yeah. So this kind of thing fascinates me. I didn't look at polyvagal um, only probably because it's, it's too complex for someone like me who has literary training as opposed to science training. So I, you know, I try to be really careful not to go into areas where, you know, I leave that to the Bessel van der Kolk's of the world because he's an expert in that yeah. field. And I know there's really important work on it. But one of the things that I looked at was, and, and for the general reader, I think it's really important for them to understand, you know, when you have cortisol, uh, the stress hormone pumping through your brain because you're being abused, you're being bullied, you're starting to dissociate. 
Um, in other words, you, you're starting to identify with the aggressor and lose selfhood, these kinds of things um, in order to survive. And for your brain uses this as a coping mechanism, a very effective one. But what's also happening is the cortisol is eroding your blood. It's like damaging all kinds of levels. It's hurting the um, that parts of cells that have to do with like keeping you healthy from cancer. Like, you, you know, it's the same, the way I think about it is like smoking. I don't need to know what oncologists know. I don't really understand lungs in a deep science way and how they work, but I can certainly understand a, an X-ray that shows me that if I continue to smoke, I'm gonna, I'm gonna blacken my lungs. I'm gonna cause cancer in my own body. I can understand that and I can see that X-ray. And I'm trying to be that type of educator for the general reader. I'm trying to say, look, this is what the experts see. This is what looks, it looks like on a brain scan. And we need to take action now. We need to take action yesterday. Yeah. Very modest of you to say that, but uh, I get your point. <laughs> I know you totally understand it. Um, one of the things that you talk a lot about is um, this idea of the mind bully. And um, we were having a, just a, a quick conversation about it before we started, but I think it's a very useful way to be, be begin to understand this because there's a, there is a Venn diagram between trauma and bullying, isn't there, where these things come together. And I like your idea of the mind bully because it, it gives you this ability to dissociate yourself from yourself almost in a healthy way. So, so I just wonder if you could just sort of maybe outline the concept for us briefly. Well, it's, it's so interesting because I developed a mind bully myself. So when I was writing the book, I was trying to unpack why I behaved in the way that I did. And I mean, I dissociated to the point where I had put away, I have completely clear memories of it, but just as you say, I kind of dissociated to the point where the person that I was as a teenager who was uh, physically and emotionally and sexually abused by three teachers and there were many other victims and it all went to court and so on and so forth. The typical case, right? Oh, the big scandal and, you know, back to business. So I had put this so carefully away in a box that kind of sat to the, the left of me that I hadn't really integrated it into myself. So it, it started to operate then as a mind bully. So while I was out in the world being a you know, academic, oh, passing my PhD exams with distinction on full scholarship at University of Toronto, blah, blah, blah. I would come home and behind closed doors, I would bully myself. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of, I did a lot of cutting. I had a terrible eating disorder. I was psychotic. You know, I knew how to be a high performer out in the world, but my private life was full of unintegrated trauma. I was your classic body keeps the score. And I was hurting my own body because I, I had no idea that I needed to take this teenage girl and her trauma and actually work through it. And I was seeing psychiatrists. I was seeing psychologists. I never told them anything about it. I mean, I'm the classic case. So I became, think of it, I became Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's just that Mr. Hyde was in my head and it was turned against me. I was, I was damaging my own self. Mm -hmm. And this is, there's two presentations. I could have gone out into the world as a teacher and repeated the abuse done to me to my students. Very I could have done that. And I, I would love to tell you that I was really making a conscious, good-hearted, ethical character decision when I didn't do that. But that would be a lie. I just happen to be the personality type. I'm very introverted. I'm very academic. I'm very um, full of sort of self-expectation. So I turned it against myself. 
So that is the mind bully. And in our society, we have so many people that are holding themselves back from happiness and from health and from fulfilling their potential because they have the mind bully in their head. So in the book, I do a lot of work, as you know from reading it, I do a lot of work with the reader on, you. just as you said, you have to separate it out. You have to become aware that it's not you, that it's something that you've created that helps you avoid looking at the trauma. Because if, if it's your own problem, if, if the mind bully is your own issue, you don't ever actually have to take a hard look at what happened to you. You don't have to be the victim. You don't have to be vulnerable again. You don't have to feel what it was like to be a teenager to be treated that way. That's easier. It's easier to keep the mind bully beating you up because then you don't have to become a victim again. Mm -hmm. So if you find the courage and you have a really good like mental health practitioner and a really good you know, safe network and a sacred space to do it, you got to go into the arena, you got to be that victim again, and then you have to choose not to have the mind bully, but to have an empathic coach to replace that destructive, outdated thing you use to survive. You now need to really go to what I call the empathic coach and start to get good coaching. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing there is that people often say to us, don't they, in our world, uh, there seems to be more mental health issues in the world. Is that because we're more aware or is it because there's more? But what you're saying is, um, um, I, I don't want to say true because I know it is, but w w as you're saying, in other words, a better way of putting this, there's almost three approaches. If you've been a bu if you've been bullied, you're likely to bully yourself, bully someone else, uh, someone else, or be able to fix yourself. But that ex that explains the prevalence of bullying and the prevalence and the growth in trauma, doesn't it? Because because actually this is it's replicating, isn't it? It's sort of reverberating through society, and that's why. I think your your observation about cutting, I think, you know, we come across that a lot in our world in psychotherapy and such like, uh, and eating disorders. And it's not a regular thing to relate that back to bullying. It's not it's not the way that we're trained to think about that as being a bullying thing. But it, it is fascinating because, of course, there's always an attachment issue or a parental issue, um, whether that parent is a natural parent or a school parent or something. There's so, always that somewhere around it. But we... I don't know whether we think enough about the cause being bullying, the cause being a form of trauma, which is your own mind bully working against you for, for the rest of your life. It's a fascinating way of thinking about it. I love the metaphor, but actually you're saying it's, it's a bit like I'm a person that experiences anxiety. I'm a person that has my own mind bully. It's, it's that sort of cognitive separation you're driving at, I think, is it? You know, so, okay, you've said so many things in that, that I, my brain is going in different directions. I'm just gonna unpack that a teeny bit. First of all, what you said is, I think one of the most vital things. You said, you know, you can have a parent that does harm to you abusively or bullying or, you know, whatever. Or you could have a parent teacher or parent coach or parent church leader or parent um, Boy Scouts leader. And that is a mistake. So when I did psychotherapy and when I did psychiatry, everybody was looking at my family. Oh, and so I was really working hard, being the dutiful girl that I am. I was, you know, trying to tell them everything I could think about that was dysfunctional about my family. They never asked me about teachers. Yeah. They never asked me about coaches. And, you know, these figures are, I mean, kids spend more time with these figures from the age of five on than they do with their dysfunctional family. Yeah. So I never really put two and two together. I never said to myself, just as you're saying, oh, maybe I have an eating disorder because I was uh, sexually abused. Well, 
as you would know, um, Vincent Felitti, that became his big question, the American doctor. In the late 1990s, he started saying, these obese patients, maybe I should ask them some questions about themselves rather than just treat the fact that they have yeah. obesity. And what he found out, and this is what led to the adverse childhood experiences study, he found out that all of his obese patients, like 99% of them were sexual abuse survivors. Yeah. And that's when he started to say, hey, hang on a second, what's going on in homes? Do we have a lot of child abuse? Well, yes, indeed we do, it's rampant. And then, but you know what? In the adverse childhood experiences study, it was all about the home. Are you being emotionally bullied at home, emotionally neglected? Are you being sexually abused at home, physically abused at home and physically neglected? They did not ask about teachers and coaches yeah. and all those other parents out there. There is a direct correlation as we know, since the late 1990s between child abuse and, and going back to your point, Russell, about the body and, and uh, chronic illness, which is a result of child abuse. Mm. And well, in, not in all cases, obviously, but in many cases, it's a result of child abuse and shortened lifespan. Yeah. But we don't teach parents that. We don't teach doctors or, no. or coaches or anybody about this correlation. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the parent role, irrespective of who it is, is, is predicated on power because that's how it works. I mean, you, you know, if you go back to your original transaction analysis, it's, I'm not okay because I'm young and I don't know and I am vulnerable. I'm, I am in your care. And I mind is, you know, my own abuse came through the church. And um, it's interesting to think about the church and the way it's progressing in your country at the moment because they, use, they actually are using it, using the church message in a sense to bully vast numbers of people to create fear amongst vast numbers of people as a way of re, you know, almost hooking in victims who are already suffering from their own mind bully to perpetuate the cycle. And I say this in work as well in coaching, you know, you'll, you'll meet bullying bosses and you'll always say those bullying bosses that have, you know, have a, a problem in their back, a backstory. Um, it is fascinating. And it's, it's how, how philosophically, how close bullying and power and authority and management and control and uh, abuse of power it's a very difficult dividing line isn't it because one person's bully is another person's very sort of straight down the line person and and there's something in your own chemistry and your own brain makeup which actually can take someone who's not a bully for somebody else and they become a bully for you and that that's a that's a tricksy one isn't it well there i i i hear that in two different ways First of all, um, when, you, when you have a bully, one of their key powers is favoritism. Mm. So you will have an individual that they treat properly and you will have an individual simultaneously that they destroy, right? So as I don't, you probably don't enjoy swearing on your podcast. So I'm gonna soften this, but um, a woman I know who uh, was an emotional abuse victim of a coach and this is an apt description of what I went through as a teenager. She said, you know, the coach, either he wanted to F you or he wanted to destroy you. Well, when I, I went through it personally and what I learned was we were being used as targets. I refused to have sex with the teachers, but there were girls, 15, 16 year olds who did. So the girls that did got put up on a pedestal. They got all kinds of favors and public favors from the teachers. They were treated as if they were queens. Whereas we, the ones who resisted, who were targeted, I was treated like to constant barraging humiliation constant yeah. and so it's and, and, and sorry to jump in here i just wonder therefore there is a there is a difference in the way we should be thinking about the way that men and women are bullied by usually other men 
because because that doesn't tend to happen so much amongst bullied men. I mean, this is possibly a conversation for us in a different place, but um, I, I just wonder if that that's just, that's uh, that's something to to pull apart. Well, I, you know, it's really interesting you'd say that because my son, the reason why I started to pay attention to my own abuse was my son, who was 16, was being targeted to constant uh, humiliation by his coaches. He's an extremely talented athlete. And what I learned in the research is coaches that have weak egos often go after the talented athletes because it increases their power. They make everybody and performance. else. And performance. Performance. Yes, and they make everyone on the team think if they can crush the most talented kid on the team, then everybody falls into line. But they also put other kids up onto pedestals. This here was the favoritism again. And those kids will be the first ones to come forward and say, yes. nothing happened. Uh, that I love the coach. The coach is so good to me. Yes. He's he's never done anything wrong that I've witnessed. So you need, a, if you're a bully, if you're an abuser, you need defenders. They're a key part of your Machiavellian narcissistic psychopath strategy. Yeah. Right. No, that's great. I, I love that idea. And actually, in your book, you go really into the um, power dynamics of um, things like athletics and such like. I mean, we've seen a lot of athletics, institutional bullying in lots of different sports, all hidden under this idea of um, performance. And um, and that's fine. No. I need to stop now because otherwise I'm going to get distracted down there. But one of the things you do talk a lot about, and I like this idea, um, and I think this is really important, is that you don't talk about people um, being fixed or about people being cured, which I think is great. And you don't talk about people learning to be better. What you talk about is people who unlearn and rewire, which is, you know, it's a very common phrase that people underestimate because unlearning is actually a very tricksy process isn't it so i just wonder if you can tell us a bit more about that well unlearning the problem with it is it's incredibly hard it's easier to learn something new than it is to undo a neural network that is embedded in your brain so and and it's really hard too because you're unconscious of it obviously so you would see this a ton in your work which is the person comes in and they have a default neural network so you know, let's say they were uh, sexually abused by a teacher. So every white male that looks like the teacher is a danger. So that's a default neural network. It's the brain trying to keep you safe. It's like, if you burn your hand on the stove, your brain never forgets that because it, that's how it keeps you alive. And that's its job. But in complex modern life, you have to learn sometimes that you don't want to feel anxiety every time you pass the stove. You don't want to reject all white males because you were abused by one. You've got to, you, and this is why you have to talk to your brain. And it sounds dumb when I say it that way, but as you would know in the book, learning how to, as you, you described it well before, I thought that the idea that you dissociate very consciously your brain and you speak to it. So when I talk about mindfulness, I'm not talking about the usual, oh, you, you want to become present and you need to let go of thoughts and feelings. For me, mindfulness is you close your eyes, you do your deep breathing and you start talking to your brain and you say to your brain, look, you know, we've got to, we've got to nuance this. We need emotion concepts that are more complex and more aware of the richness and diversity of life than simply just, you know, kickstarting the same old neural network that's really holding us back. It's out of date. Let's rethink this. And we have a ton of power to do that. That's what's exciting. And I think it's, uh, and I think you'll say that I'm glad you cleared clear that up because I think you use mindfulness in a different way to the common way that it's used. And actually, your approach is closer to hypnotherapy or what we call hypnotherapy in the UK. I think you call it therapy under hypnosis over there. Um, um, 
So I think that's really important because actually what you're doing is you are rewiring. You're actually, that's what you're doing. And, and you you talk about um, an institution, your um, book called Eaton Arrowsmith, which is involved around your family and other clients and such like. And, and they talk about cognitive realignment and this sort of stuff as well. So there are a lot of tools out there that can be learned and your book points you to them. Um, and I was very drawn to one, one, one thought as I, as I went through it because you've been a victim, I've been a victim. And the book talks a lot about victims and we forget themselves, we forget the bullies a victim as well. And, and I often think that there's not enough time and resources spent on helping the bully. We spend so much of our time helping the victim. And I just wondered, and I can see you're nodding. So, uh, and I don't know whether, I don't know I had this wonderful idea because it was in your book, but um, <laughs> you may as well claim it was you um, because uh, I, I was very influenced by it. But I just wondered whether uh, the, the emphasis on treatment is in the, is, needs to be split between the two parties. I absolutely agree because, you know, especially with children and children have such powerful brain plasticity. They have, I mean, they don't have to unlearn tons of stuff because they're brand new. Yeah. They, they've got a brain that's so, you know, malleable and can be changed. And we have it right until the day we die, as you know, but children have really intense neuroplasticity. So if you have a kid who's showing bullying behaviors, it's a red flag. There's something very seriously wrong in their lives and they need help. They need help just as much as any victim does. And, and really society should be intervening with finding out what's wrong in the family, finding out if the kid's being abused by someone else, finding out what's going on and getting that kid right away the help they need. They don't need any discipline. They don't need to be in trouble. They don't need to be told they're bad. That's all a waste of time. So my big thing is, as you know, in the book, I'm trying to shift the conversation from treating bullying and abusive behaviors as a, as a moral issue. Yeah. I'm trying to say it's not, it's a medical issue. It's a brain issue. It's a body issue. We've got to start helping people when they show the signs that they are infected with this uh, really entrenched social disease that we are, we normalize all the time, but it's incredibly unhealthy, you know? I, I just, that is my biggest hope is that people start to understand that switch. And the fact of the matter is, if we start to understand bullying and abuse as a medical issue, then we can start talking a lot more about, oh, then how do we get it better? How can we help these patients, bully and victim? Yeah. Abuser and victim, you know? So I'm just writing that down. I like that. It's like you know what I'm like, I like, well, I have a thought. I can only, I can only hold it in my head for three seconds. I have to write it down. That's brilliant. Um, so thank you so much for <laughs> spending time with us today. The book's available on um, amazon.com and amazon.co.uk. I see it's the number of five-star reviews has gone up. So that's good news. And um, I wish you all the best with it. I re heartily recommend this book. It's, I think you said to me, it's a bit grim at the beginning, uh, but it gets going. And I think that's, you know, that's a, an interesting thing. I don't actually think you need to read it from cover to cover. I think dipping in is actually quite in interesting. It's how I read it, is I sort of read it from back to front almost. And I find that quite useful because it's the, the, the chapters are so, um, I think if you've got the issue, you don't need to spend hours looking at it. What you do is you want to think to yourself, so what am I going to, what am I going to do about it? And I think the way it's numbered in chapters really helps that. So I can only um, recommend this book heartily. And thank you again for your time, Jennifer. And sorry, Dr. Jennifer. And uh, wish you all the best for the rest of your lovely day. And especially for the horse in the background. Well, thank you, Dr. Russell. I really appreciated our conversation. As I said before, you know, you have such a 
insightful and knowledgeable way of thinking about these issues. I learned so much from, from speaking with you. I really appreciate it. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.